Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. For Politico, I'm Ryan Heath, reporting from the hustle and bustle of Web Summit in Lisbon, Portugal. And this is Global Insider. I wish you could be here to experience all of this with me. It's the world's biggest tech conference, 40,000 people and a stage vibe that Amy Poehler called a combination of American Idol and Squid Game. I don't know what that makes the conference cloakroom where we recorded this episode, but heads up, there's a little background noise. But that's how you got to roll sometimes if you want to be a global insider, so thanks for bearing with it. Last summer, the international press exploded with stories of Belarus's rigged presidential election, which granted strongman Alexander Lukashenko a sixth term. He's a former Soviet Union Communist Party official who is, for intents and purposes, Europe's last dictator. Chaos, outrage and the demand for change unfolding right now on the streets of Belarus. Demonstrators and the main opposition candidate in the election have rejected official results, calling the election blatantly rigged. Demonstrations in Belarus show no sign of slowing down and that's despite a violent government crackdown. More than a year later, most of that reporting has stopped but the persecution of democracy activists continues. Lukashenko's opponent in the race, Svetlana Sienoshkaya, is exiled in nearby Lithuania, but still pushing forward with her campaign to bring democracy to Belarus. Since Sienoshkaya fled her homeland, she's been on a world tour, taking interviews and meeting with foreign leaders, and always with the same message, to increase sanctions against the Lukashenko regime. While Sienoshkaya is in many ways an accidental politician, becoming a candidate only when her husband, the original Belarusian opposition leader, was jailed, she has become a rock star in the world of democracy activists, capable of rallying her supporters in Belarus to maintain weeks of grueling winter protests, and even introduced at the Oslo Freedom Forum in October as the president-elect of Belarus. But I started by asking her a simple question. Given everything that she's gone through, how is she doing now? It's not over yet. Who knows what's waiting for us? I just wanted to check, when was the last time you were able to speak to your husband? Oh, uh, the only time uh, I had opportunity to speak to my husband was phone call from jail when uh, Lukashenko came to jail and uh, my husband, Sergei Tikhanovsky, had opportunity to call me. It was 10 minutes uh, call. Oh, that must be tough. It was rather, yeah, it was rather strange call, you know, and now I have uh, communication with my husband only through the lawyer. Just uh, simple things, how are children, how is uh, this uh, health and so on. Nothing about trial itself. That's very difficult. For people who have only seen you as this very prominent leader of the protest and democracy movement in Belarus, I maybe wanted to go through how you came to be in that position. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to make the decision to run against Lukashenko in the last election? You know, uh, for many years uh, I had to bring up my children and it was my husband who stand against Lukashenko, who started to go from city to city asking people how their life was. And when he was jailed before uh, election campaign and couldn't participate, I went instead of him because uh, my first step was only to show my love to my husband, that it's important for me as well what he was doing. Yes, you're right, I'm accidental politician 
situation. And but I really had gone long way and I had to study a lot. I had to study how to communicate with politicians, with diplomats. Uh, what's the difference between parliament and senate, you know, and uh, I have to study diplomatic language. It was very difficult, but I had and have uh, the best teachers, presidents, prime ministers, ministers of foreign affairs. So uh, I hope I'm doing my best to study and to be a leader of my people on the international arena. I wonder, was it a really hard decision to make when, you know, your husband has been sent to jail, the election is coming up uh, and somebody has to take it to Lukashenko? You know, did it take you one minute or one week to decide that it would be you? No, I didn't have one week. I just had one evening for decision. And at that moment, I wasn't hesitating. First of all, because I sure that Central Election Commission wouldn't register me. But uh, for sure, they wanted to make love of me, of housewife. Uh, They thought nobody would vote for a woman without any political underground or background. And... uh, you know, it was maybe the hugest mistake. But I think that regime lost a connection with Belarusian people. They didn't understand that people have changed, first of all. How do you go about maintaining the enthusiasm and the anger of all of these people who have decided that Lukashenko no longer speaks for them? Uh, it must be very difficult to do that from a distance. You know, as I always say, uh, God bless Internet. Uh, Through uh, YouTube channels, Telegram channels, Zoom conferences, we can communicate with people on the ground. We can communicate with those who had to leave the country. And our main task now is to keep this unity. And it's not difficult, I have to say, because uh, Belarusians saw the hell in Belarus, and they are not ready to change their mind. They want changes in Belarus. They want their children to live in wonderful country. And we are communicating with the diaspora all over the world. We are communicating with um, people on the ground, with workers, with students and uh, the teachers and whoever. We are building structures, first of all, in Belarus, uh, just in case when, uh, when we are ready, for second wave of uprising, uh, we will be connected. That's a very important point. One of the, the big problems that many opposition and democracy movements have is planning for a transition. You know, they are prepared to get rid of the regime and are very successful in mobilizing the anger and then their plans of what to do when they get power are not so developed. So I was wondering, tell us a bit about what you imagine it will be like the day or the week that Lukashenko is gone. Will you uh, run to be the the permanent president of Belarus or is it something that you intend for your husband and and how will you begin that transition? You know that our strategy strategy is uh, to have peaceful transition of power in Belarus and we think that it could happen through negotiations uh, with the people from the regime. And after these negotiations, uh, before these negotiations, all political prisoners have to be released from uh, prison. Violence has to stop in Belarus. And only after this we'll discuss this period of transition of the power. It will take uh, about 60, 90 days only before new elections. So we'll have to discuss who will rule the country during this period. It could be me or together with the other you know, political leaders. And after new elections, new president will uh, come to the power and together all Belarusians will build a new uh, country where people are respected. 
I want to pick up on that point you made about the political prisoners needing to be released. My understanding is there's about 500 now, and also there's been new raids on journalists, so more top editors who are facing arrest and jail. And the reason I say that is not to focus on the journalism, but I think that now that Belarus is not in the headlines every day, people might believe somehow the situation has gotten better. And I want you to tell us really what the situation is now. You know, uh, this is the rule of modern world uh, that if you are on media, so you exist, you are fighting. But uh, we can't show beautiful pictures of uh, beautiful demonstrations in Belarus anymore because the level of violence is too huge. The level of repression is awful. But this fighting is continuing. It's mostly underground now, but people are united as never before. And uh, at the moment, there are 830 recognized political prisoners, but up to 2,000 people are in prison uh, under political charges. And... uh, this number is growing every day. Uh, detentions are, are continuing uh, every day. People are maybe detained for the color of their socks or for their comments uh, or under videos or whatever. People absolutely not safe in their um, apartments. Uh, people in masks can be can enter your uh, apartment, put the sack on your head in front of your children's eyes and uh, jail you. It's awful, but despite of this, uh, people are not giving up. People resisting uh, as uh, they can. And uh, speaking about political prisoners, uh, I really doubt that people uh, that got used to democracy uh, can imagine the conditions that political prisoners are kept in jails. They are deprived of uh, fresh air, normal food, um, any medical help. Uh, they don't have pillows or uh, duvets, you know, to, to sleep. They are kept in cold, in solitary cells. You know, the conditions are awful. Uh, but uh, People, even behind the bars, they are strong. They don't give up. And, uh, uh, you know, each of them uh, was asked to write uh, the letter of pardoning to Lukashenko and they could be uh, released. But people don't do this because they believe in what they were doing. They understand that they sacrificed with their lives, uh, freedom and uh, health to give us opportunity to continue. And we can't betray uh, those victims. One of the messages that's been very clear in all of your communications around the world is the need for the world to continue to apply or to increase sanctions against the Lukashenko regime and the individuals and the family members um, of the top officials in Belarus. Can you tell us why you think the sanctions are such an important tool? Uh, You know, we understand that, uh, as I always repeat, uh, sanctions are not the silver bullet, but they really can stop... uh, uh, way of behaving of the regime. And regime is really afraid of uh, United States sanctions. And uh, on December 8, U.S. sanctions will start uh, working in Belarus, and uh, uh, we hope that these sanctions will work as a secondary. So uh, regime's cronies will not be able to uh, ev- avoid them. And I have to say that sanctions should be joined, that USA and uh, European Union, United Kingdom and other democratic countries should act uh, uh, you know, in, in, in one action to support each other. And 
we, we see that uh, Belarusian's regime doesn't understand diplomatic language. They uh, understand only the language of power. And uh, sometimes um, I think that regime uh, can ex percept the uh, delaying of sanctions as weakness of democratic world, and we can't allow this. And is um, the point of the sanctions, is it to ensure that the regime eventually runs out of money or that the elite can no longer function as an elite? Or is it some other kind of political show of force that's designed to intimidate them? Yeah, absolutely. Sanctions deprives uh, regime of the money and the businesses that are around Lukashenko, they have to think twice if they are ready to lose everything uh, supporting this uh, this person or they have to think about their, um, you know, th their businesses. And uh, sanctions uh, for sure influence uh, th those people in business and they influence people in the regime. They understand that this uh, person doesn't think about country, he thinks only about his power, but most of Belarusians want a prosperous uh, country. And I hope that they will, one day they will make right decision. Mm -hmm. And what is your feeling or your understanding about where the police and the security police and the military stand? Because if they were to defect, if they were to not be paid their salaries or would uh, find another reason to join you, then, then it could be over for him much quicker than people realize. You know, I think that uh, a group of uh, police officers whose hands are already in blood because of tortures uh, of Belarusians last year, uh, they will be with Lukashenko till the end because they understand that they are also criminals. But most of normal police officers and security officers, they uh, also understand that it's impossible to work in such a country. But regime for many, many years built this uh, structure when uh, they have a hook on everyone uh, just to blackmail people. And of course, uh, people in police also afraid for their lives, for the lives of uh, uh, their family, and they had to be uh, in this regime at the moment. But I have to say that a lot of people in the regime communicating with us, and we ask them not to defect, but to stay in the regime, but to give us information, what's going on uh, in the regime, to give us um, audio or video recordings uh, from inside and this works uh, you know very wonderful for for us we have a lot of people inside there Th that's a fascinating point about how how you organize yourself as an opposition network now so i guess you would say um, more and more people are sharing you that information is that fair to say that there are more people leaking or blowing the whistle about what happens inside the regime towards you yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, we are getting a lot of informations, uh, information from enterprises about their economical mm -hmm. state, about the mood uh, in, in uh, main state enterprises as well. And uh, there is a group of people uh, called cyber partisans who... Uh, give us slick information from uh, from police, uh, you know, from uh, other departments, and uh, uh, we make video of this information where you know police officers are talking uh, about uh, uh, tortures, uh, about uh, political prisoners, you know, about judges and so on, and just for people to remind that. Uh, you know, this violence is continuing, and it was uh, since the beginning of this revolution. 
and uh, but 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 I really think that uh, most of I have to repeat that most of people in the regime want changes as well. But fear sometimes is difficult to step over. I want to ask you now about this kind of bullying that the regime is doing against European Union countries. They're taking migrants, they're taking people that they brought in from Middle Eastern countries and they're busing them to the border, sometimes making them think that they're somehow going to get into Germany or something like that. And actually, they're just ending up in Lithuania and Latvia. And it's an attempt to really provoke these countries and their fears about migration. What would you like the EU to do about this? Regime is trying to weaponize uh, migration to take revenge on the European Union, Poland and Lithuania, first of all, uh, uh, for supporting um, uh, democratic forces. And uh, as we know, dozens of planes uh, have brought uh, thousands of people from uh, Syria, you know, from other countries um, to Belarusian capital and kick them to the borders of the European Union. And we understand that it's provocation and uh, it's uh, like human trafficking scheme. And now in this very difficult moment for Poland and Lithuania, I uh, want European Union countries to keep this unity, to help uh, Poland and Lithuania to uh, deal with this situation, because of course those people are also the victims of this regime. And I see how Polish, uh, how uh, Polish governments uh, want to take care about people. They can't allow uh, thousands, thousands of people into the country, but they are trying to send uh, humanitarian help to those people who are stuck on the borders. They are trying to communicate with the countries of origin of those people, just stop these planes. I'm sure that European Union countries have to understand the core of the problem. It's not migration crisis. It's not hijacking of Ryanair flight. The core of the, this crisis is inside the regime. And only when we get rid uh, of Lukashenko and his cronies, the situation will stabilize. No other way out of the situation. Again, I know it's, I'm, not, I'm jumping from topic to topic now, but I'm fascinated by the role that Vladimir Putin could play. Um, do you see any moment or tipping point where he decides Lukashenko is not worth it? He is too much of a burden to me financially or uh, in terms of reputation. And, and maybe there is something that would cause him to cut ties. You know, we always send uh, messages to Kremlin that uh, Russia is our neighbor and we always will be neighbors. And we don't want to spoil relationship, trade relationship with uh, Russia and its people. And... Uh, I think that uh, the fact that Kremlin supported Lukashenko after uh, fraudulent elections was a strategic mistake uh, of Kremlin, and uh, now they also have to look uh, out uh, to look for their way out of the situation. And Lukashenko is becoming too toxic and too expensive politically, diplomatically, and uh, economically for Russia. And uh, we want Russia not to interfere uh, into internal affairs by uh, not supporting Lukashenko economically. And it could be a constructive uh, way that Russia can, can lead this policy. And we are open for communication as well. And, uh, you know, we are having a conference in Wien, in Austria, uh, this November, and we are inviting somebody from regime side, from Russian side, to initiate this dialogue for solving out the crisis. 
Um, that's really interesting. Um, so you would be willing potentially then to stay in the Eurasian Economic Union. You know, I think that Putin placed a high value on, on Lukashenko being involved in that. Um, you would be willing to stay in that, for example. Look, we are already in this union and we don't uh, want to spoil all the agreements that uh, have been made before. But we want our relationship with Russia to be transparent, to be understandable for people, because uh, most all uh, the decisions uh, were made, uh, you know, uh, under the carpet. And no one person knew what's going on. Nobody knows what uh, these roadmaps about uh, immigration mean. Uh, we have never been involved into this, but we want to know, we want to um, uh, participate in the uh, in future of Belarus, in policy of Belarus. One last question maybe on the Belarusians who are around the world. So maybe not the people who fled the regime in the latest protests and flawed election, but you know, you have very famous sports stars. For example, you have very high profile tennis players like Victoria Azarenka, Ariana Sablenka, etc. Uh, soccer, football players, um, people like that. Are they involved? Will they be willing to step up the next time there is a big flashpoint or, or, or protest? Uh, you know, we are trying to involve uh, all the famous uh, Belarusians who are not in the country now. And uh, uh, many sportsmen supported uh, uh, our sport movement uh, in Belarus. And uh, But of course, uh, uh, they could be much more involved, uh, I have to say. And because uh, the Saul is also, you know, crying about the situation in Belarus, maybe, uh, maybe that they, they could be more vocal uh, about the situation. So maybe uh, using this chance, you know, to uh, ask them, uh, stay with Belarusians because you have the same roots that we have. And uh, at the moment, Belarus is in, in it's in its historic uh, moment and uh, you really can be the part of our success story. And to finish on a, a positive note, could you tell us what's the first law you'd like to change or what's the first thing you're looking forward to when democracy comes to Belarus? I'm sure that new president will make the law about freedom of speech and uh, prevalence of law in our country. For nobody would be afraid to speak about the situation, to give information uh, about, uh, you know, about uh, government, uh, about laws in our country. To for everyone knows what's uh, going on in reality in Belarus. Sviatlana Sianoskaya, thank you so much for joining us on Global Insider. Thank you, Ryan. Olivia Reingold produces this show. Our editor and executive producer of audio is Irene Noguchi. I'm Ryan Heath. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode of Global Insider.